great. Well, why don't you open your Bibles? We're in Acts 17. I, too, was thinking about Emma uh, last night. I was sitting in what's known as the prayer chair in my house. It's, it's Emma's old uh, lazy boy. Um, yeah, and just a wonderful reminder of, of a very faithful woman who spent much time in prayer, and I think if we just took that home from today, that would be enough. We're going to open up to Acts 17, so as you find your, your way there, uh, I'll just remind you that uh, the writer of Acts is Luke, and he's a doctor, um, and I think as part of his medical training, no doubt he would be exposed to what we call master classes. Who's ever heard that term before, master class? Yeah, I think in, with musicians, there's a similar sort of thing. You, you invite like a, like a Jordi Saval or a, um, you know, one of the world-famous kind of musician, and, and you have him come in to a, a class of already accomplished musicians, and he has them tweak the performance and, and polish it. And um, same thing in medical training, Luke was probably a, an accomplished physician, and yet town to town, no doubt he'd pop in at the local hospital and, and get a master class and learn further uh, details on how to polish his practice. And I think he, he's aware of those kinds of um, lectures, and. Today, we're going to use that same idea of a master class to parse our text up into, into two sections. Um, and so this is uh, two master classes, in, one in missions, courtesy of the master missionary, uh, the Apostle Paul, and the other a master class in listening, courtesy of the Bereans. So with that framework in mind, uh, let's approach our text. Now, when they passed through Amphopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to find them and pull them out to the crowd. But when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus, and when the people and the city authorities, they were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they'd taken money as surety from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there, and those who had conducted Paul with him as far as Athens, and after having received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. <laughs> so let's tackle uh, the first of Luke's 
master classes. This is the master class in mission. And there's three lessons I'd like us to pull out. The first is being, um, when we look at Paul, we learn that we should stick to the assignment and trust God with the results. Let's jump down to our text in, chapter, in verse 1. It says, now when they pass through Apollonia, uh, <laughs> I knew I was going to get this one messed up. I've practiced so many times. Amphipolis, 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 oh boy. Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, or his habit. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. You know, it's, it's interesting that Paul sticks to this format, because it's always in the synagogue where the troubles start, isn't it? But into the synagogue he goes. Remember in Jerusalem, the Hellenistic Jews got in such a riot that the that the brothers removed Paul and sent him to Tarsus for 10 years. In Antioch and Pisidia, he's forcibly driven out. In Iconium, there's a plot to stone him, so the brothers tell him to leave. In Lystra, those Jews catch up with him and stone him half to death and leave him for dead. I mean, is Paul a glutton for punishment? What is it? Why does he keep going to the synagogue? Anybody know? He's sticking to the plan, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. This is a theologically driven priority as well as maybe a practical one. But listen to what Paul says himself in Romans uh, 1, chapter one uh, sixteen: For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So despite persecution and apparent failures in previous synagogues, off to the synagogue Paul goes. He sticks to the plan, and he trusts that the Holy Spirit will do its thing. I don't know who, who here is uh, whatever generation I am, but you guys remember Pinky and the Brain, right? I can imagine it's sort of like Silas going, well, Paul, what do you want to do tonight? And Paul says, well, the same thing we do every night. Silas, we go to the synagogues and get our butt kicked. And give the gospel, right? Like, he, he stays on task. He sticks with the plan. And I think we can learn a couple things from this clear observation. Firstly, you know, I think we can, Levi and I, we both think we can overreact to opposition or hostility and stop evangelizing after just one bad encounter. We like to say things like, oh, well, that, that didn't go well. I guess that person's not elect, or those people aren't chosen. I, I'll go on over here. When really what we mean is like, that was awkward, or that's embarrassing. I didn't like that. That felt uncomfortable. I was out of my comfort zone. I think this is a huge obstacle to our personal evangelism. Certainly it is for me. I'm so good at this that I can overreact to hypothetical hostility, Right? I can imagine things are going to go bad and that shuts me down. And what a shame that is, right? Paul could have easily said, look, based on my experience, I've analyzed this very carefully. Things don't go well when I go to the synagogues first. I'm just going to skip and go to the Gentiles. But he doesn't. He sticks to the plan and the priorities that God has given. And people are saved. And riots break out. Right? He never knows. Revival, riot. Revival, riot. Maybe both. We don't know. But he sticks to it. 
But imagine like us after evangelizing and we get one bad encounter and, and, and he shuts it down. I, I think a lot of fruit would have been lost. So Paul and Luke, through this narrative, are telling us, don't let pushback alter the plan. Okay, don't let that happen. Secondly, demonstrates, uh, Paul demonstrates a commitment to doing things God's ways and following his commands and doesn't just fall victim to pragmatism. What's pragmatism? Well, that's just simply doing what works or what gets us results. At this point, Paul's having way more success with the Gentiles than with the Jews, and it could have been very easy for him to say, I'm going to skip the synagogue and all the troubles and all the beatings that come with it. I'm going to go straight to the Gentiles. They're the ones that are open anyway. But he doesn't. He remains faithful to God's commands. God's commands determine Paul's habits. As was his habit, he went to the synagogue. You know, I, I wonder how Gentile churches would have fared under that kind of missiology. No Jewish members, just new people, no root, no thousand years of history examining, rooting yourself in the scriptures. I think we could have seen all kinds of sideways without um, a firm Jewish root in these initial churches. And in fact, that's probably what happened in Corinth and why they were such a gong show. So God's commands have rationale. Paul doesn't care. He just follows them. He doesn't question them. And I think that's what I'd like us to, to see. You know, I think sometimes we, we chase success at the expense of being faithful. And, and that success is in quotes again. It's doing what, doing what works rather than what God has commanded. You know, the seeker movement in the 90s, I think, is a great example of this. People chased numbers. They chased growth. And what did we have at the end of it? We had sprouts that lost root. The, the, the last century is replete with examples from mainline churches seeking after pragmatism, what works, right? They're, oh, well, we can, we can bend on this issue. We can, we can accommodate culture on this issue. And what has happened to the United Church or the Canadian Lutheran Church, right? They went with what works, which worked for a time, but ultimately produced no fruit. You know, and this is about trust, isn't it? God trusts, like Paul trusted God's commands, even though he may not have seen the rationale, maybe he did, but he stuck with God's commands, God's priorities, and knew that they would ultimately be successful. Thirdly, committing to God's plans doesn't mean necessarily we're going to be there to finish the job. Don't get tricked into thinking that you're necessary for the completion of mission. Sometimes we individually as a, or as a church, we're arrogant enough to think that God needs us to finish. Right? And, and sometimes we're, we're well-meaning in that arrogance, right? Like we're, we're trying to be diligent and push through. But that can get to our heads. I can well imagine if I were in Paul's shoes, I'd be thinking... What will this tender new church do without me? They have no root. They've just heard the gospel only three weekends. They need me. Lord, keep me here. They need me. And I bet lots of Thessalonians thought the same thing too. And there's like, oh, take Paul from us. Lord, what are you doing? We need him. 
But Paul knew that all pastors are replaceable. The Holy Spirit will continue to work through others. And so he leaves Thessalonica and walks into a great ministry opportunity in Berea because the Holy Spirit's with him. But also a, a giant ministry breaks out in Thessalonica, the place that he just left, pastorless. Right? Growth doesn't require you or me. It requires the Holy Spirit. Listen to what uh, Paul himself says in 1 Thessalonians, verses 6 to 8. And you, with, without me there, without Paul there, became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Archaea. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Archaea, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. All that happens without Paul there. Paul knew God delights. He delights to use us. But we're not necessary. Right? And sometimes God's got another plan. Sounds like Paul knew about this. If you read in 1 Corinthians 3.6, it says, I planted, Apollos watered, ah, but, but God gave the growth. That's just not a way of keeping us humble. It is, and that's a good thing. It's also a way of protecting us. Paul's faithful to plant. Others faithful to tend and water. But spiritual response and growth are the gospels, uh, to the gospel are in God's sovereign hands and in people's own free will choices. And that can be freeing for us. Okay? I'm going to show you why in a sec. We need to stick to the assignment and trust God with results. And that sounds really hard in practice. I think we all know of a situation where we've done our best and, and we've been faithful, but it's still a disaster. And this is where the freedom comes. It's, the results are not up to you. If you're a parent, do you have a child that's not walking with the Lord? You put in 18 years of diligent, faithful parenting they walk away. It's hard to feel, it's hard not to feel a sense of responsibility and ownership for that, right? How about a dear friend who you've known for 10 years, poured time and time and energy and love into, and, and they walk away from the church? We've seen that here. That stings. And we can feel an unholy guilt about those things. Are you in a situation where a friend's in persistence and despite your best efforts to point them to God's ways or are you part of a ministry that's dying despite faithful, faithful efforts? All those situations, we can feel guilt, we can feel despair and a sense of unfinished work. And, uh, and that can really be murder for your soul. And what Luke is trying to show us through the life of Paul is that is not the Christian way. Paul simply does what's in his wheelhouse and he trusts that God will show up and do the rest. Okay? Listen to what a very wise man once said about this issue, about unfinished work and about guilt and responsibility. Charles Spurgeon says, the true servant of God is responsible for diligence and faithfulness. 
but he is not responsible for success or non-success. Results are in God's hands. That is a tremendously freeing principle. And as I went through the text, this is the one that really just came alive to me. Be free. Leave the results in God's hands. You just be faithful. Okay? Our second lesson in the master class is always be ready for redeployment. And this is sister to something that Levi preached about a couple weeks ago. Let's, let's take a look. Um, verse uh, 5 and, and verse 10, then later on. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in uproar and attacked the house of Jason. And verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul away by night to Berea. So here in the narrative, we see that just after three Sunday visits to the synagogue, Paul's triggered enough of the Jewish population that they've lost it. Their hair's on fire, and they're angry enough to, to beat the door down of, of a rich and powerful person in the city, Jason, and incite a riot. And... Uh, and what's the response of the Thessalonican church? The brothers immediately sent Paul away by night. That, that word brothers is adelphos, and it means brothers and sisters. It's, it's a collection of people, okay, believers. Let's notice that Paul here is okay with strategic retreat. He's not a coward. We've established that already. He just endured beating and imprisonment in Philippi, and Lystra, where he was beaten so bad they thought he was dead, Gets up, goes to Derby with Brother Barnabas for a short detour, does some more ministry there, and then he's back right there to Lystra where he was half beaten to a pulp. He's not a coward, but he's not stubbornly stupid either. And the consensus of the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica that he should move on is enough for him to go. Strategic retreat is just as much of a guiding principle for Paul as faithful endurance of suffering. I think Paul probably had the words of Jesus kicking around his head where Jesus tells us that and wherever they go and don't receive you, then when you leave that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Paul's okay with leaving. In this case, I don't think Paul wanted to leave. He had motivations for staying. Number one, he, he loved these people. Listen to what, it's, uh, what Paul writes to them in 1 Thessalonians 2.17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, but, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. Paul had genuine brotherly affection for these people. It'd be hard to leave that, yet he does. Thessalonica was also super strategic. It was on the imperial road. It was a hub, a distribution hub for, for ideas and goods. It's kind of like Barry, the gateway to the north, right? And here now, a bunch of people in this church tell them, no, no, Paul, you got to go to Berea. That's like going to cold water. And Paul, I can imagine thinking, man, wait, 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 like, there's, like, it's important to have a good church here in Thessalonica. It's the gateway to the north, man. Like, this is like, we've got to stay in Perry. I don't want to go to cold water. Right? I like cold water. I live in cold water. I can say that. So despite brotherly affection for these people and a, a very keen sense of the strategy of the Thessalonican city, he still consents to moving on. And why? 
Why does Paul say, yeah, okay, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll go to this lesser ministry opportunity? I think the text suggests pretty clearly, because it's the pattern of Acts, that the Holy Spirit is motivating, okay? And here the Holy Spirit is working through the very simple and ordinary means of a consensus of a local church body. And Paul's obedient to that, and he leaves this big ministry opportunity for a small town, Greece. And what does he find? But open hearts, ready to receive the gospel. Verses 13 and 14. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. This dynamic, again, is repeated and repeated in Acts. It echoes observations from from chapter 16 with Lydia in, in Philippi. Paul and his leadership team pick up and redeploy on the basis of what? They're planning to go to Asia, and anybody remember? You guys are sleeping. That's the hint. If you're sleeping in church, Paul has a vision, right? We think at night. And the vision is of a Macedonian, a Greek, saying, help, 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 right? But, but what is it that actually gets the push for Paul to abandon these plans in Asia? It's a consensus interpretation of that vision that was made in community. Pastor Levi encouraged us, based on this narrative, to do a couple things. If, who's taking notes? Oh, I won't embarrass people. But if you did take notes from two weeks ago, you'd remember that one of the headings was keep moving when God closes the door and to seek counsel when discerning direction. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here. We see the same principle worked out in the narrative. Paul submits to counsel and keeps moving and is redeployed to Berea with great success. And many of them therefore believed. I think it's interesting to note that the Holy Spirit uses persecution as much as success or maybe more than success, to disclose his will for the next step in personal and corporate mission and evangelism. We need to recognize this principle that persecution is often a means of redeployment. It's not a sign of failure. Persecution, opposition. That leads us to our third and last lesson in the master class is don't be surprised by ongoing opposition. Verses 5 and 13. They formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea, they came there also, agitating, stirring up the crowds. In the preaching workshop, um, we talked about, well, this point has been made before, Gary. Right? It has been made before, but we need to hear it again and again and again. I need to hear this again. I feel like this could be an application in every sermon on Acts. Don't be surprised by ongoing opposition. We can't hear it too much. Like Luke has this theme recurring all over the place. Why? Because Luke and the other apostles knew that we would need to hear it more than once. We wouldn't believe it when Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. That wasn't enough. 
So Peter and John in 1 Peter 4.12 and John in 1 John 3.13, they both say again, don't be surprised because he knows that we are going to be surprised. We're going to hate this. We're allergic to opposition. But both Peter and John say, don't be surprised by the fiery trial. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. And yet we are. I don't know why. Jesus reminds us that persecution and opposition are actually on the road to blessing. If you look in the Sermon on the Mountain in the Beatitudes, it's punctuated by blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they treated the prophets that came before you. Right? Opposition is on the path of blessing. We need to see that. We need to expect that every triumph is accompanied by opposition and cost until Christ returns. That is just the, the Bible paradigm. Sometimes, if you're like me, you're a bit of a people pleaser. Uh, you think you've done something wrong when you offend people and you retreat from it. But we have to remember the gospel is offensive to some. It stinks of death. That's literally what Paul says. It smells of death to those who are perishing. It's offensive to the ones blinded by the truth. But often persecution and cost and loss of my rights are proof that we're actually on the right track, that we're following God's commands. Commenting on this very passage in Acts, G. Campbell Morgan says, no propagative work is done save at cost. And every genuine triumph of the, tr- of the cross brings after it the travail of some new affliction. Travail, that's the word we use for a laboring woman, right? I'm not a woman, but I see a lot of women in labor. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> it hurts, okay? After it, it brings labor, recurring pain, every three minutes, the worst of your life, right? Some new affliction, some new sorrow. And we share in the labors, the travails that make the kingdom come. I think, ladies, you can relate to this better than I can. Understand, brothers and sisters, that when we do God's work, a target gets painted on our backs. The powers and principalities of this world are not going to waste their time on sleeping, ineffective, lazy, or distracted Christians. The devil is too smart for that. But Paul knew that he was, in fact, a danger to the kingdom of darkness. And so he expected the enemy to retaliate. He expected countermeasures to be deployed. And sometimes the enemy took the form of Jews, fellow Jews in synagogues, sometimes rich merchants like those in the idol trade in Ephesus. Sometimes the enemy was disguised as local politicians incited by a mob. 
like in Philippi, but always behind the religious disputes, the corporations who lose their income because of the gospel, or the machinery of politics, lurk the real enemy, Satan. Listen to Paul's own description that he gives us in 1 Thessalonians. Again, the people who uh, he just witnessed to. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. We're not sure what means Satan used in this specific instance, but it's clear that Paul knew his war was not against mere flesh and blood. Calvin, John Calvin helpfully uh, explains here, Paul could nowhere erect the kingdom of Christ without some conflict, for so soon as any fruit of doctrine appeared, there arose persecution therewithal. But because he knew that he was at war against Satan and the wickedness of the world, he not only hardened himself against all assaults, but he was more encouraged, more courageously to proceed. That awareness of the target on his back hardened him against all assaults and gave him all the more courage to proceed. I, I, I pray that would be so with us and, and with me. Ongoing opposition, cost, and apparent failure is, is really tough and it can get exhausting. I can relate to that. Whoever has been burned out, felt burned out, felt like they couldn't keep going. I mean, this is a real thing. I mean, I, in part, stepped down from being an elder at one point because of this issue. It's exhausting. And that's why we need to be corrected. We can't do this in our own strength. We need to constantly be praying for filling and refilling with the Holy Spirit. You cannot do this on your own. Missions and ministry are not just strategic problems that require intellect or incisiveness to solve. They're spiritual battles that need to be fought with spiritual weapons. So if I can press one point home today, it's this, simply pray. Pray. Pray personally and corporately. I'm convinced that that is the antidote to this very fleshly thing that we think we can do it on our own. Right? I'm uh, always uh, convicted by what Luther said. You know, for, for people that are sort of, they think themselves of self-made men or women, um, you know, where they get stuff done, um, I confess I'm one of them. Listen to what Martin Luther says, and he got more done than any one of us will ever get done. He says, I've got so much to do today, I better stay three hours in the prayer closet, right? That does not sound like Gary Pizer at all. And I don't think it sounds like many of us, except for maybe Emma. Right. So, so let's do what, what Paul actually writes to the Thessalonian church, the church in our story right now. He says, pray without ceasing. Press that point home. And that's how to be a master missionary. That's the missionary master class that Luke lays out for us in our text today. 
But he's got, he's got more for us. He's got more for us. He's got a master class in listening, courtesy of the Brian Church. So let's tackle that one next. This is often the most emphasized uh, part of the narrative. Um, many, many preachers will choose to skip over what we just looked at and jump right to this. Um, and it is super important. And if, I don't know if you should ever do this as, a, as a, an amateur preacher, like listen to other people's messages after you've written yours, because you're like, oh man, Paul Carter did that with it? Oh, that's so good. Why not? Oh man. Um, so I do suggest you listen to Paul Carter's message. It's on, I think it's September 5th, uh, Cornerstone, so go for it. It's very different than what you heard today. Um, but wow, he really bangs on this point, okay? Uh, often as, uh, so th- th- this narrative is really, really emphasizing, and it is important. So um, often we're told, be like the Bereans, right? That is, that is a thing. Um, and, and for good reasons. Let's remind ourselves about what, who the Bereans were and what they did. Uh, verse uh, 11 and 12. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So what does it mean to be a Berean? Uh, what does it mean to be noble-minded? Uh, does that just mean open-minded? Does it mean agreeable? Nice? Like they, they were nice when they welcomed Paul? Is that, is that what Luke is getting at? Uh, again, G. Campbell Morgan's helpful. He says here, the noble here is the man who appeals again and again to the scriptures themselves to find out if these things are true. It's not the nobility of readiness to believe anything. Okay? It's not undiscerning. In fact, it's the opposite. It's the nobility of being determined to find out if human interpretation is in, court, in accordance with the actual scripture. And that's what we should strive for as Christ followers. We've got to read our Bibles, simply. Weigh what it said. What is the scripture saying? Sometimes I wonder about preaching a frankly heretical point. And, uh, and just to see what would you, you guys would do. I mean, I'm 230 pounds. Like, you going to move me? Is like, uh, Keith going to come up here and take me out of the ankles? Right? Like, do we have a shepherd's hook somewhere around here where they can just, oh, there's Gary going off on a dad joke again. Get him off! <laughs> I, I think the Bereans actually had a shepherd's hook. They were a backwater, little, timey town. I bet they had one of these. What's being commended here is really discernment, okay? And let's, let's see that. Let's be like the Bereans and be discerning ourselves. Bring that attitude to church. You should bring it here to church. And if I ever say something or if Levi ever says something that's questionable, we should be called out on it, you know? Um, usually the message by the time it reaches you has been filtered through a couple people. I'll make a confession. Um, one of the lines that I had in a previous uh, draft um, was called out as heresy. Now, it wasn't, like, terrible. Like, it just, I didn't feel like I had the space to give the full side of the other side. You know, it's about God's responsibility and human responsibility. So you heard me say human will today, so I corrected that. But, like, we have a, we have a mechanism for, 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 for removing some heresy from from the pulpit here, like through the working, the, the preaching workshop. 
And that's good. And we have a community of local believers and pastors that hold each other accountable. You have a group of elders that are holding preachers responsible. This is a pretty safe place. And yet we're still telling you be discerning. Right? Where we really (laughs) need to take this message is home. Right? Books, I, I would say... 50% 50% of what you'll find at the local Christian bookstore is probably heretical, right? And, and the number is much higher if we dare use that terrible animal called the internet, right? Completely uncurated environment there. As Pastor Paul says in his message, unlimited information and zero curation. I think that's like... Danger, Will Robinson, danger, danger. Like, we need to be very discerning listening to YouTube, listening to podcasts, okay? Because you don't know those guys from Adam. At least you can look Levi or myself in the eye and say, are you sure you're being true to the text? Okay, that's what the Brians are doing. They're being very discerning. So let's do that. Let's ask ourselves, does that comment square with good biblical interpretation? That's a good question. So the natural question that follows is, how do we become good interpreters? How do we listen well? And I would say two hugely important principles fall right word for word out of the text, and then there's a couple more that we got to dig a bit for. But the first one is right in verse 11, examining the scriptures, the scriptures, examining the scriptures. Who here has ever heard the phrase, let scripture interpret scripture? Right? Like it's one of those mottos from the Reformation, right? It means that we shouldn't only, we shouldn't ever base our opinion on an issue on one text, especially if that text is ambiguous or unclear. We should let the Bible clarify passages uh, in itself, self-interpretation. Let me give, just give one quick example. You don't want to form a, a, a doctrine of hell only using the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, that's, just, that's just not wise. You, there, there are, the Bible has much, much, much more to say on that issue than just one thing. So let the scripture interpret scripture. I think one of the best ways to store this back in your memory is the best commentary you can ever buy on the, on the Bible is the Bible, right? Like, that's the best commentary you'll ever find. So that's what the Brians did. They examined the scriptures. They didn't examine YouTube, okay? Secondly, they examined the scriptures frequently. Notice that word daily, not just Sabbath, According to a recent LifeWay survey, only 30% of us are reading our Bibles daily. Uh, that's, a, that's a tough number. A bit of a confession time. I'm a, a binge personality kind of person. Uh, very handy when you need to stay up all night um, and, and help people in labor and whatever and, and work uh, crazy hours. But decidedly unhelpful if this spills over into your spiritual life, which it does. Like, I might put in enough hours of the week in the Word. 
but is it daily? And I'm, I'm saying, no, it isn't. And I'm saying that's like really stupid, right? Like every day I know I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna go into an environment that is potentially hostile in enemy ground, and, and I've, I've binged, and I, I haven't dailyed. And, and now God's word is not on the front of my, my mind and my heart. That's, anybody else think that that's dumb? Right? That's, that's stupid. And maybe you're in the same boat as I am. Well, we need to change it. That's what the Brians did. They didn't engage in a dangerous habit. They engaged in a, in a good habit. And, and let's resolve to be like Bereans and change that. Thirdly, that word examine means to study. It, it, it's sometimes used in court deliberations, cross-examination, investigate, examine, inquire into. And that implies a, a careful reading of biblical context. Good interpretation, being a good Berean, means that we have to have an awareness of context. I think everybody knows this verse. We could probably all say it together. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Right? Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and hope. Okay. What's the context of that verse? I've seen that one on a graduation card. Hey, behold, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to not harm you, to prosper you. Right? But what's the context of that verse? The, the, the name it and claim it crowd say that, well, they'll, they'll put that on, on the billboard saying, like, see, if, if you just, you know, give us your money, if you just do what you're told, God is going to give you blessing upon blessing, boys and girls, I tell you. He's going to pour out the heavenlies upon us and he's going to make sure that you will not get harmed and you will prosper in all your ways. Just help me buy that jet now. Right? Taken out of context. Did you know that that verse is the exclamation mark when God slams the gavel in judgment down on the table and says you're going to captivity for 70 years? This is not a verse to, to give to Gary on, on graduation Sunday and say, oh, I mean, medical school kind of was like prison a little bit, so maybe it would have been appropriate, but you know what I'm saying? This is not a verse that, that, you know, that guarantees our prosperity. This is a word of hope for a nation in jail with a 70-year sentence ahead of them in hard labor. That, that verse is more about God being in control over the fate of, fate of nations. It's not a personal guarantee of success. And you don't know that if you're daily breading it or ignoring context. So good biblical students will examine context. They know where the verse is from. So how do we get that? Well, we've got to read our Bibles, front to back, the whole thing. There's no escaping that. Fourthly, fourthly, good students are also uh, good listeners are good are also students of the Bible. Well, let's try that again. Fourthly, good listeners are students of the Bible. Capital S. Think of that word examine again. Good students take notes. Good students show up to class, right? Coming to church. 
good students, they, they bought the course book, right? And they have it with them, and they actually read it. They're also aware of things like genre. They're aware of things like history when they try to interpret the Bible. This is a little, uh, not quite as straightforward as our previous applications. But good students, they read poetry as if it's poetry. And they don't force literary conventions of documentarian history on apocalyptic genre. Okay, let me give a really clear example of this. To the year is 2011, and you're driving south to Barrie, and on your right-hand side, you notice a billboard. And what did the billboard say? The end of the world, May 21st, 2011. Remember that one? Right. Harold Camping. What did he do? He ignored the literary conventions of apocalyptic and decided to read Revelation like a chronological play-by-play and absolutely mutilated the text and came up with crazy town, butchered meanings, okay? There is some intellect required to interpret the Bible correctly. Yes, the youngest of the young can understand what it is needed to be saved. That does not absolve us from looking at the text. It doesn't absolve us from from studying appropriately. So, The advice is really simple, uh, because this is a huge subject, and it's really, literally a two-liner. Get informed. The church and the sermon are a great place to start. Every week, people have been working hard to try to distill God's word and give you an honest interpretation. This is a great place. We're going to teach you about context, how to interpret, those kinds of things, background, application. Another great way that you can do this is to get a book on how to interpret the Bible well. And... I've got one here, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. There's a lot of them out there, but this one's really good. Uh, Gordon Fee was part of the NIV translation team, if I remember right. And it just, it gives you some of the tools that are needed for honest and accurate biblical interpretation. I'd be very curious to see, maybe by hands or after the sermon, who's interested in maybe a small group on this kind of thing at some time in the future. Okay? But... that's a good start, and coming to church. You can't do it without that. The, the, the last point here for the, for the whole sermon is simply this. Uh, be like a, to be like a Berean, good listeners pray and seek the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures. And we can be the brightest mind in the world um, and still a- apply the text wrong, interpret it wrong, um, if we don't have the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Peter admonishes us, warns us. Know that no prophecy of Scripture, no application or interpretation of Scripture, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture was spoken by the Holy Spirit, and it's heard through the Holy Spirit. Okay? Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive. Give us eyes to see. That's what we're praying for. So pray that God will help you understand and the Spirit will lead you into the right interpretation. That's how to become like a Berean.
Examine the scriptures, right? Pray. So in closing, we're, we've, uh, we've been given just two things in our reading of Acts today, a master class in missions and a master class in listening. There's a couple resolutions, bang, 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 that we can come up with. Let's resolve to pay attention to Paul's habits and let's stick to the assignment, right? And let's trust God with the results of that. That's a freeing, blessing thing. The results are in God's hands. Number two, always be ready to redeploy. Three, don't be surprised by opposition, even though you will be as soon as you walk out that door. <laughs> and let's also resolve to be good listeners like the Bereans. Let scripture interpret scripture. Read frequently, read daily, read it in context, become a student of the scriptures and pray. And to that end, let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, it always has something for us. And uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would press home um, just your word today. Uh, often there are things that people hear that weren't in the intention of the preacher. And Lord, I pray for that today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in, in the hearers and convince them of the truth of the value of your word, that it lasts forever grasses wither, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Lord, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may be empowered, not just to understand your word, but empowered to do your word. Let us be doers of your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.